Thank you, Helen. Thank you very much. Um, so um, I'm Neil Harrison. I work at uh, the University of Oxford in the Department of Education there. Um, and this event really uh, grows out of um, a, uh, a, a fledgling idea, which is about trying to, to come to grips with, with what some of the changes around our understanding of what constitutes expertise and what constitutes knowledge uh, and what that means for, for higher education uh, looking forwards. Now the picture that I put up here, some of you may recognise it, and this is where this, this framing of alternative facts come from. Uh, it's a, a phrase that was coined by Kellyanne Conway, advisor to Donald Trump, um, when she uh, attempted to justify earlier comments about how the crowds at Trump's inauguration have been larger than those at, 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 in Obama's. Um, and uh, her contestation was that, uh, yes, there may be facts like this photograph, but she had alternative facts. Um, and so I, I thought that was quite interesting. It sort of fits into wider ideas around post-truthism um, and ideas around sort of fake news and, and so on and, and so forth. Um, so that, that's really where we're coming from. In terms of the structure of today, I'm not going to talk very long at all. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a contextualization about where we're starting off from. Then I'm going to hand over to our presenters, who are each going to present their, uh, their papers. There'll be time for questions after each. But one thing I do need to let you know is, unfortunately, Alison McKenzie has had to cancel her paper, the last paper today, um, at short notice. So my apologies, uh, she won't be here. Um, so what we're going to do is to have a bit more time at the end for discussion, um, and particularly focusing on, on perhaps some of the solutions to the problems that we're going to pose throughout the day. Um, so again, so apologies for that. So where did it begin? Um, it began with this special issue of teaching in higher education. So I'm one of the executive editors of the journal um, and uh, we take it in turns within the executive board to um, act as curators or custodians of, of special issues. We do two a year. So one of the things I, I do need to make clear here is I'm not presenting myself in any way as an expert on expertise. Um, I'm a custodian and curator only in this instance. Um, so I worked with Cathy Luckett at the University of Cape Town, um, who is an expert in this field. Um, and we started off with 100 abstracts, over 100 abstracts that we got for the special issue, narrowed that down uh, to 12 articles that actually found their way into the special issue. And four of those articles are going to be presented today. Now, the, the special issue has now been uh, published. Uh, it came out um, last month. You can find it online or, or uh, in your libraries and so on. One of the things that we were delighted about was the, the, the um, scope of the different papers that we got um, from countries around the world. Some are very uh, much more practical, some more f philosophical, um, some based in individual practices, other, others based on, on, a, on a wider and more generative approach to, to the topic area. So I do encourage you to have a look at the, at the, at the special issue if you get a chance. So, where, where do we start? Well, we start with, the, in my, my mind, with this chap on the left here. Most of you will recognise that as being Michael Gove. And he, in an interview for Sky News a couple of years ago, uh, uh, suggested that the people in this country have had enough of experts. And I thought that was quite an interesting position for the uh, for a Secretary of State to take. Um, I spent some think, think, for my, uh, think uh, myself around then what that meant for higher education and how that fits into some trends that we're seeing within, within society um, to the point where a senior politician can, can make that claim. So we've got this idea of, of an erosion of that traditional ideas of expertise as, uh, and, and the way in which experts have this role of, as creators of knowledge and mediators of knowledge within society. And that's a role that, that, that's been 
in place for uh, certainly since the Enlightenment and almost certainly dating back longer than that as well. And the other part of the context here is about that shift towards an information-rich society. We're now in a situation where nearly all of us, certainly uh, in the global north, have got access to limitless information at virtually no cost at our fingertips. Um, and so that idea of the expert as a mediator of information, as a mediator of knowledge, um, is, is obviously in decline. There's this democratisation of access to knowledge. Um, so what role do we then, do we then have? <coughs> Looking forwards. Um, and interestingly for me, um, Giddens uh, uh, saw this coming long before the information age. And he talks about this idea of, of a bargain with modernity. That as we shift through modernity, we're, we're having to balance off a deference to experts with a growing scepticism about the expertise that they bring to bear. And I thought that was really interesting, you know, 10 years before really the arrival of, of, of the World Wide Web and the internet and so on, and, and that, that kind of information revolution. Anthony Giddens uh, had already sort of predicted this, this, this shift in what it meant to be an expert. Um, one of the things I should say is that um, throughout my little talk here, I've quoted from a number of the papers uh, in the special issue. What I haven't done is quoted any of the people who are presenting today, so I didn't want to steal their thunder. But this quote here is from, from Wizam uh, Abdul-Jabbar's paper. Uh, and uh, not quote, sorry, this point here. What he reminds us actually in his paper is that all this has actually happened before. His paper is based around some of these questions about knowledge and expertise, which date back to the first contact between Islamic scholarship and uh, the translation of ancient Greek scholarship into Arabic um, a thousand years ago. And he, he draws a very interesting parallel between those two periods of time about uh, what knowledge, how, how different forms of knowledge challenge uh, society. Okay, so we have this idea of a, of a, of a, sh of a shift from facts to interpretation. I won't, won't over-rehearse this, I'm sure many of you will be familiar with this, starting with, with Nietzsche's uh, work then finding a new uh, new home within the postmodernism in the in the 70s 80s and onwards so this idea of interpretation subjectivity and perspective being uh, as important if not more important than, than, than fact and Ulrich Beck in his work in the early 90s talks about how uh, information becomes knowledge through this uh, the, these pa this power of uh, contacts of media of manipulation of presentation it's not that the fact itself will win out, but it's the way in which it is uh, mediated through society and through power within society in particular. Um, and more recently, the work of Latour, who, who was looking at um, uh, scepticism around climate change, um, this idea about in an attempt to emancipate the public from the idea of objective facts, that perhaps we've ended up with a, with a distrust of experts, which is not helpful for society. And matters of fact end up, as it says there, disguised as bad ide ideological biases. So these were some of the, some of the framings that Cathy and I uh, worked around in terms of trying to understand papers within the, the special issue. Um, with, with higher education having these multiple roles, and this, this is, I think, comes to the, the, the heart of what we're trying to do today. The idea of knowledge producer, that the universities are the seat of research, where knowledge, large amounts of knowledge that we use in society are created. Um, but also as reproducer, through teaching we decide what uh, knowledge is applicable for the next generation coming through after us, uh, what we think is valuable, what we think is powerful knowledge, um, not just through classroom teaching but other forms of knowledge exchange which universities are, are engaged in. 
But also, I, I argue that um, universities increasingly are taking a, a role as a knowledge packager as well, of deciding how knowledge should be chopped up into digestible chunks that are then sold, either metaphorically or literally, uh, to learners. And that that role of, of packaging and repackaging knowledge is also part of what higher education institutions do and part of the way in which uh, we need to critique uh, those roles going forwards. So universities are the site of a disparate range of, of expertise, a disparate form of expertise that could be expertise in terms of research, knowledge, uh, knowledge production, or in terms of, of teaching, or indeed in terms of marketing and rethinking. So for example, thinking about different forms of transmission of knowledge through perhaps on, online uh, approaches or distance learning approaches or knowledge-based uh, teaching and learning, for example. So the question really that I want, we want to pose <clears throat> is how do these roles, these three roles, and you may argue there are others as well, how do these need to change in light of the post-truth world, the alternative facts world and, and so on? Do they need to change and how do they need to change? That's really what we were trying to grapple with within the, the special issue. And in, in our editorial to the special issue, we um, uh, pose this in, in two, uh, two halves. The first half we call the roots of the problem. The second half we call the seeds of, of the solution. And I've got slides which I'll come on to in a second about, about problem and solution. We're using those as a framing. We don't see the solution as necessarily a perfect solution or, or but a direction of travel. So I'll, I'll go through what, what we've uh, learned from the process of doing the special issue quickly. I won't use my last slide, which is the seeds of the solution. I'll come back to that as, as, as a framing for the discussion at the end, end of the day. So we've identified a number of different, <coughs> different problems here, and you'll see each of these is uh, illustrated by a quote from one of the papers uh, within the uh, special issue. So the first is the rise of social media, and this idea that knowledge uh, creation and validation now has a new process, whether or not we like it, and that is uh, knowledge through acclamation, through the sense that enough people socially recognise a fact to be true, uh, reinforces that idea of, uh, of, of knowledge, even if those beliefs are erroneous. So there's this idea here that recognition has replaced rigour in, so, in, uh, in some circumstances. And in particular, the very nature of, and, and this is what Alison would have been talking about had she been able to come, um, the very nature of the way in which uh, social media and the internet more broadly is structured means that it serves to reinforce people's existing positions, existing beliefs, existing um, epistemological and axiological positionings. Um, so it becomes a self-reinforcing mechanism uh, rather than an open mechanism. So that's, that's the first, uh, the first uh, trend that we identify within the paper. The second is around a, a loss of epistemic deference um, so the idea that we as educators um, are losing our, uh, our role as, uh, as experts. Now, in some instances, that may be entirely appropriate. And that's one of the questions we might want to address in the course of, uh, of the day. Um, what uh, Jim Horndon uh, talks about here uh, is about the way in which actually higher education has been very slow to recognise that this is happening. Um, that this has happened without our uh, without our say so. It is just a, a slope on which we are uh, currently uh, engaged. Um, and in particular, it talks about how the marketization of higher education 
um, has actually served to erode the idea of an epistemic community, a community of scholars as well, because those ideas about scholarship and the uh, and the norms that uh, and the um, the process of evaluating knowledge claims is actually weakened by the very nature of modern marketized higher education. Um, and so we've got this idea of, of uh, educators losing their uh, cognitive authority uh, within, the, within higher education. And the third point here is around how that then is reflected in uh, relativism and what um, uh, Wright talks about in terms of being uh, naive scepticism. So the idea that there is no uh, knowledge, um, that there are two sides to every story, that perspective has overtaken knowledge, um, and this idea that um, we are, are in danger of allowing students, or, or the students are often arriving with us with this idea that it is about learning the debate, not about learning the knowledge that underpins the debate. Um, and that there is no <coughs> right answer uh, to, uh, to that. Um, and that then leads on, and this is, if you like, a little bit of a, a contradiction. At the same time that students are arriving at university with an eroded sense of authority and an eroded sense of, uh, of knowledge and truth, there is still a very, very strong desire among students, uh, identified in a number of the papers, for epistemic certainty. There is a fear about having the wrong answer, because the wrong answer means low uh, marks. So there's this very, very performative sense of, uh, we must know the right answer in order to get the marks, in order to get the degree that we think we deserve in order to uh, to prosper in the future. Um, and so uh, Cooper here to talk to, talks about um, the fear of making mistakes. Um, where uh, And Ibra Abat and Alison McKenzie talk about how ignorance isn't just a lack of knowledge, it's actually um, a, a, a strategy that many students employ in order to navigate a very, very uh, knowledge complex world. And therefore, there's this idea of wanting to have certainty about what it is that needs to be known. Um, and then finally, the, the final two points which are, which are related here. The, the, the first of those is around uh, the increasing contestation of curriculum um, and how uh, students are increasingly and quite rightly beginning to question who gets to determine what should be learned, what their authority is, what the nature of their authority, where that is derived from, and, and so forth. Um, and particularly in light of um, curricula in the Global South, uh, which has vestiges of colonialism. So the paper by uh, Mahaputra and, and colleagues uh, focuses on, on how the British curriculum still lingers within Indian higher education and what, what, what ramifications that has in terms of what is being learned uh, and, and indeed taught. And then finally, how marketization means that the global north has continued to exert uh, a hegemony in terms of uh, knowledge, in terms of what is being increasingly sold or exported in other ways to the global south, uh, and that that also frames part of part of the issue here around uh, the nature of expertise and reinforcing some colonial ideas about who are experts in our uh, current world.
So I'm going to leave uh, leave it there. Uh, I, if there are any questions, I'm happy to take them very quickly, but otherwise I'd like to just move on uh, to Elizabeth, who's our first speaker, if that's okay with everybody. Okay. In that case, Elizabeth, the floor is yours.